Well, earlier this week, I was out with my boys, and we were doing some bike riding. And this is actually, this last week was the first time we finally got our bikes out for the year. I uh, got them out of the shed where we've been keeping them, pumped up the tires, dusted them off. Our summers felt really full, so, so that's my excuse. But, but since it's been a while since we have gotten the bikes out, I wanted to make sure that our four boys were pretty comfortable on bikes again. And so we live right across the street from, uh, from a public school at our house. And so we just went over to that parking lot and there's lots of concrete, so lots of open space, nothing for them to run into except for themselves. There's some islands for them to kind of steer around, a couple of steep inclines. And, and I thought that would be a great chance to, just to help them get comfortable on a bike again. And they, and they were doing great. So we're there, everybody's having a ton of fun, and then finally it's time for us to go home. And so everybody else starts heading back, except one of my sons, who I had to promise to keep his identity unknown for me to share this story, as will become clear in a second. One of my sons, he stays back, and he's doing one more lap kind of around the spot of the parking lot where we were. And he's doing great. He's hitting the turns like a pro, kind of goes up this little incline in the parking lot, just doesn't slow down, just fights through it, hits this turn. And so, so he's finally on the home stretch, right? He's, he's on this straightaway coming back towards me. He's doing great. Think that, okay, he'll get to me. We'll go home. We'll be done. But right when he's on this home stretch, right when everything is going good, anonymous son hits this little pothole in the, in this, in the concrete, kind of overcorrects like you can sometimes do when something happens you aren't expecting, and he runs right into the curb, and he's on... He's on the ground, right? He crashes. Now, for all of you caring hearts out there, he's tough. He's a little boy. He got back up. He's fine. But, but right when we thought he was doing good, right when we thought he's on his home stretch, nothing's going to go wrong, he crashes, and he crashes hard. So far in this David series that we've been in, David has been doing really good. We've seen everything about David's life pretty much as up and to the right. He's a man after God's own heart. He trusts God in big ways. And then even in the trials that he faces, even in the difficult times when when King Saul is after David for his life, David responds to those times pretty well. He's learning all the right lessons. And then between last week and what, what, what we looked at last week and this week, about 20 years have passed and David is now king. And in the first couple decades of his reign, David's up and to the right trend continues. He's got lots of military victories. He's received some amazing promises from God. But then just when we think David is on the straightaway, just when we think we, we've seen David hit the home stretch and everything is smooth sailing, David crashes, and he crashes hard. See, if you're new to David's life, what we're talking about today is David's adulterous one-night stand with this gal named Bathsheba. But, but we're not just looking at that one incident. We're looking at, that, at the whole aftermath of deceit and cover-up and, and ultimately murder that this generates. You see, instead of living for God... David veers away from God's design for his life, and David goes his own direction. He lives only for himself. David takes God off of the throne of his heart, and David puts himself there instead. And then this man that couldn't be taken down by Goliath, this man that couldn't be taken down by King Saul, his his pursuit of David, 
David is taken down, finally, by his own sin. And then this is where the story gets personal. Here's why we all need to be paying attention this morning. There's a few reasons, really. See, this story is important because any one of us here this morning, any one of you, me, all of us, any one of us could be David. Some of you might be here and you're saying, you know, there's no way I could be David. The sin that I'm struggling with, the sin that I'm keeping hidden over here in this dark corner of my life, it's not really that big of a deal. I can manage it, Tim. It's contained. Or you're thinking that that sin isn't big enough, that it, that it would certainly never take you down. It couldn't topple you from wherever you're at right now. Or maybe you've just been moving up and to the right for so long in your life, or, or just more specifically in your relationship with Jesus, and you think that, that there's no way a downward spiral could ever happen to you. I wonder if these are exactly the same sorts of things David had going through his mind. When the sin started out, I wonder if he thought, this is small, I can keep it contained. Or, or I wonder if he thought, I'm tight with God, I'm bulletproof, nothing can take me down. But David still face plants hard. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12 says that if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Sometimes it's, it's when we're standing firm that we start to coast. We start to take our eyes off of where our eyes should be. And that's when we're most susceptible. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful. Pay attention. We could all be David. The story of David and Bathsheba is important because it also shows us what sin really is. See, in David's life, we see that sin, even though maybe it starts out thrilling at first and exciting at first, sin is really not glamorous, not attractive, not exciting. Ultimately, David's sin generates cover-up, denial, deceit, image management, murder, and then ultimately we see that it displeases God. And so we can't just ignore sin. We can't pretend it's really not that big of a deal. We can't pretend sin is really glamorous. It's not. Even though sin may start thrilling, it doesn't end that way. Talk with any addict who has been steeped in his addiction for decades. I'm sure that addiction started out thrilling for him. I'm sure it started out exciting. It's what pulled him into it. But after decades of struggling with this addiction, that addict will tell you, after he's lost his family, after he's lost his physical health, after he's lost anything that approaches his ability to provide for himself, stability, productivity, that addict will tell you, sin isn't glamorous. Sin is serious. Take any sin, I would say, and just simply play it forward. See, see what things are jeopardized by that sin as it continues to grow. And you'll see that sin isn't attractive. It's selfish and it's going to leave its own aftermath. This, this shock wave of negative consequences. Some of you right now, this morning, you're in the thrilling stages of sin. And I hope that as we see sin in David's life, as we see what sin really is and where sin can lead, I hope you, you see what sin really is. I hope you gulp hard. And then I hope you turn around, turn away from that sin, and turn toward God.
And then finally, this story is important because we need to, we need to see how to respond to sin. Because as serious as sin is, sin and then sin's consequences, they never have to have the final word. We learn that God shows grace. David confesses to God. He turns from his sin and God extends. He's eagerly extending grace to David. God takes his sin away. Sure, there are still consequences, but David experiences the cleansing that comes from knowing that he's been forgiven. Some of you here this morning, you feel conviction about your sin. You feel the weight that you've been carrying around, maybe for days, maybe for years. You've just been carrying around this sin. You feel that conviction. Let me show you this morning how to respond because we don't want you to get so calloused and numb to that sin that it can't, that it can't even affect you anymore. We don't, want be, we don't want you to become sermon-proof. So that way, no matter what anybody says, you're like, I've got an excuse for that. We want to see how to respond to sin. And in David, we see confession. We see repentance, him turning from that sin and turning back to God. And then, and then best of all, we see why God can offer us assurance of forgiveness, that God's grace is greater than our sin. And so now let's boil all of this down to a couple of, of short statements that really get to the heart of what we'll be looking at this morning. So here it is. This morning in 2 Samuel 11, 2 Samuel 12, we're going to see that sin is serious. No way around it. It's that simple, that straightforward, that true. Sin is serious, but grace is superior. Sin is serious, 2 Samuel 11. Grace is superior. We'll see that in 2 Samuel chapter 12. So here's how the story starts. 2 Samuel 11, verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David, the king, sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. Now, if we're reading that closely and paying attention, there should already start to be just a couple of of slow caution lights blinking in our minds as we read that. You see, it's it's springtime. And so in the Middle East, that means the rainy season is done. And so travel and transport can resume. And so in this time when, when it's much easier now for travel and transport to be going on, kings would resume any military campaigns they had going that were necessary for extending their kingdom or defending their kingdom. But in this time when kings go off to war, David sends Joab, who's not the king. David is one of his generals, one of his military commanders. And David, the king, is in Jerusalem. So already we start to see these little hints that David is getting comfortable. He's starting to coast. He's in a good spot. I mean, after all, he's got Joab that he can send instead. And so so David thinks, why not create some extra space in David's life for David to do what David wants to do? See, things are going well for David, and now he's bored and he's alone. And that is a dangerous combination. It's a dangerous combination for David. That's a dangerous combination for any one of us. When things are going well, we think we're coasting when we're bored and when we're alone. This creates opportunity then for what comes next. Verses 2 and 3. One evening David got up from his bed and he walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof he saw a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful. So David sent someone to find out about her. 
And the man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And now the speed of blinking lights picks up and they change from, from yellow to red. Stop, David, because David sees this woman taking a bath who is very beautiful and temptation sets in in a powerful way. And then David starts to act on this temptation. He sends this servant out to find out who this woman is. And, and, and David finds out that she's, that she's married. And she's not just married, she's married to Uriah the Hittite. Now, Uriah isn't just some random dude that would have been anonymous to David in, in all of Jerusalem. How, how can the king know all of his subjects? No, write down 2 Samuel 23, verse 39, if you're taking notes. Because there, later on in this book, we start to see these lists of men who had been around David. And in that passage, we see this list of men that are around David called the mighty men, David's elite forces, special forces, and there's only about 30 of them. So David would have known these men. They fought for him, they fought alongside him, and there's not that many of them. Of course David would have known these men. And Uriah is one of these men. Uriah is one of David's mighty men. And so, so when David sees Bathsheba, finds out she's married to Uriah, this goes beyond just a, just a hookup. I mean, as bad as that would have been, this is betrayal, what David is doing here. So all of these warnings, they should have made David stop in his tracks and go take a cold shower or a couple of cold showers. But they don't. You see, David's selfish desire and his lust, they've so taken over him by this point that he's not thinking clearly. And so, so if we can just say it like it is, sin makes us stupid it warps our perspective so we don't see things like we need to be seeing things. And then in one verse, in verse 4, we see this sinful desire now take shape in sinful action. Verse 4, then David sent messengers to, to get her. Some translations say David sent messengers to take her. And that might even be closer to the force of the Hebrew verb here in that verse. And then she came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Just saying that before, before this one night stand with David, she wasn't pregnant. That's what that's saying. And then she went back home. The straightforwardness of this verse almost makes it worse. David took her. He slept with her. And she went back home. There's nothing glamorous about this. There's nothing attractive about this. What we see here is David's greed and his selfishness. We see David's sin. And then when we see this sort of sin played out in David's life from our third party objective, object, objective spot, it's easy for us to look at that and say, what a jerk. Doesn't David know what he's doing? Doesn't he know who he's betraying? Doesn't he know what he's jeopardizing? Remember those feelings. Because we need to remember that when we're caught in sin. We need to step out of ourselves. If we could step out of ourselves, we would see the same thing and think the same things about ourselves while we're sinning. Look at what he's jeopardizing. Look at who he's betraying. Look at who he's hurting. What a jerk. That's what sin is. It's not attractive, it's not glamorous. It distorts us. It warps us. Sin 
is serious. Then we find out that Bathsheba is pregnant and David is the father. And, and we think that maybe this will bring David to his senses. We think that maybe this will get David to own up to what he's done. And, and then as, as complicated as this, as this situation now is, maybe David will start to say, okay, okay we, we've got to figure out how to move forward in a right way, given how messy this is. But, but what does a right way forward look like? We think maybe this will finally get David to think clearly. But this news about Bathsheba's pregnancy doesn't get David to think clearly. Instead, we just see this, this downward spiral of his sin continue. And then in this web of deceit and image management, David goes into cover-up mode. And he says, maybe, maybe if I bring Uriah home from battle, if I bring Uriah home from the front lines and just get him home with his wife, get him to sleep with Bathsheba, he'll think the child is his and I'll be clean. I'll be clear. Nobody will know what I've done. And then over the course of a couple of days, David brings Uriah home and he manipulates things with this goal in mind. Just to get Uriah home to sleep with his wife. Only Uriah doesn't. He has too much honor. Look at verse 11. Here we see Uriah. He's back home with David. Uriah says, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. And my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? You see, Joab, or, or excuse me, Uriah, he says, how could I focus on my own comfort? How could I focus on myself when my unit, my men, everybody else is spending themselves for the good of the kingdom? What a contrast to David. David was only focused on himself, only focused on his pleasure, only focused on his comfort. And Uriah is focused on everything except for that. And he says, as surely as you live, I will never do such a thing. And now David's sin and his fear of getting caught, they push him to the extreme. Verse 14, so in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah because it's time for Uriah to be getting back to the front lines. In it he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, and then withdraw from him so he'll be struck down and die. And so David sends Uriah back to the front lines, and Uriah is carrying his own death warrant. And then we see how things play out. Verse 16, while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. And when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. So, so Uriah's unit had heavy casualties. And then just to be very clear, moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. David then goes and, and marries Bathsheba. And I wonder if he thinks, I got away with it. That was close, but I'm in the clear. We, we maybe think that until we read the very last sentence of chapter 11. This shows us that David isn't in the clear. Chapter 11, verse 27, very last sentence. But the thing David, the man after God's own heart, the thing David had done displeased the Lord. So lust, adultery, betrayal, deceit, cover-up, murder, the displeasure of God. 
There is no way around it, Brookside. Sin is serious. Every sin may not look quite the way we see sin look in 2 Samuel chapter 11. The sins you struggle with will be different than the sins that I struggle with, will be different than the sins that David struggles with. But hear what I'm saying. Sin can and sin will grow bigger and uglier than we ever wanted it to. If left unchecked, sin will lead us down paths that we never thought we'd go down, and we will do things to to harm others. Even those closest to us will do things to harm others that we never thought we'd be capable of. You see, what I'm saying is don't toy with sin. Don't think you can keep it off your contained in some nice, neat little corner. We've seen what sin can grow to in David's life. Sin isn't some cute little cuddly kitten that really can't do anything to harm you. No, sin is more like this full-grown lion that is perfectly capable of taking you out and then has every desire to take you down. A guy by the name of John Owen lived in the 17th century. He nails it. He, he says, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. He gets how serious sin is. You see, sin will be taking you down if you don't do something about it. I am so glad that this episode in David's life doesn't end at the close of chapter 11. I don't want to take away from anything we've already seen about the seriousness of sin. We need to feel that. It's healthy for us to see sin for what it really is. But at the same time, I'm looking a whole lot more forward to to seeing what we'll be discovering in chapter 12, where we see that, yes, sin is serious. But there in chapter 12, we discover that grace is superior. So between chapter 11, the end of chapter 11, the last verse, and the very first verse of chapter 12, there's about a year's worth of time that passes. We know that because later on, down in chapter 12, we find out that this child that Bathsheba was pregnant with is a son, and she's given birth to this son. And so what that means is that David has been sitting in this sin for about a year. With that tension that we've all felt, on the one hand, thinking, thinking, I think I got away with it. But on the other side, feeling the weight of sin that hasn't yet been dealt with properly. So, so David has been sitting in this for a year. With that background in mind, don't miss how big 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1 is. It says, the Lord sent Nathan, one of God's prophets is who Nathan is, the Lord sent Nathan to David. Now, now get this. There is no reason God had to do this. Conceivably, God could have said, I'm done with David. After all that, of course I'm done. I'm washing my hands of this guy. Conceivably, God could have stood 50 paces off, kind of with his arms crossed, and said, I'm going to wait until David comes back to me. I'm going to make sure he takes not just the first step, he's going to take the first 49 steps. And I'm just going to stand back here immovable until David does that. But God doesn't do either of those things. 
God doesn't wait longer than he needs to, and God doesn't stay at a distance. That's not the sort of God that he is. God takes the first step to pursue David and to begin rebuilding this relationship with him, to restore it back to where it should be. That in itself is an act of grace. David doesn't deserve this. God does it. This small thing, Nathan knocking on his door, David may have completely missed it as an act of God's grace, but that's exactly what it is. This small gesture where God takes the first step toward David. And it makes me wonder, how many small steps of grace is God taking in your life? Things that, that if your eyes aren't open to these sorts of things, you'll maybe miss it. But ways God is taking the first step, the initiative to pursue you, to rebuild a right relationship with you. Maybe it's a person God has put in your path. Maybe it's some circumstances. I don't know. But I want us to be open to the question, what small steps is God taking in your life? Steps of initiative where God is taking the first step towards a right relationship with you. That's what God wants. Now back to the story. We keep reading in verse 1 that, that when Nathan came to David, he says there are two men in a certain town. So he starts telling David this hypothetical story. Only David doesn't know it's hypothetical. So he says there are two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. And now a traveler came to the rich man, this guy that had everything. But the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man, and he prepared it for the one who had come to him. Now, now so, so Nathan tells David the story just to kind of get David's opinion on it. David thinks is what's happening. But David has no idea what Nathan is really doing to him here. Nathan brings this carefully crafted story to David's attention, highlighting this rich man who has everything and this poor man who has nothing except for this lamb that he loves so dearly. And so David, or so Nathan highlights the injustice the selfishness, the greed of the rich man. And this story completely disarms David. It flies in under his radar and under any defenses that David would have still had up after his adultery with Bathsheba and after the murder of Uriah. Any defenses David still would have had up about those, Nathan flies under those. And we see David respond quickly and severely with his verdict for this rich man. Verse 5, David burns with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And then Nathan turns this story into a mirror on David's life. And if Nathan wasn't looking directly at David at this point, this is where Nathan looks David right square in the eyes. And Nathan says, David, you are the man. The injustice and the selfishness of the rich man that we saw in that story, David, that's you only worse. In that story, we're talking about a rich man, a poor man, and some sheep. 
David, you're God's king. Uriah was one of your mighty men. And we're talking about Bathsheba, his wife. You are the man, David. And in a second, David has nowhere to hide. He's been exposed. He's been found out. And then he has about two milliseconds to make a decision. He, he, he could resist this gracious confrontation that God has brought through Nathan. I mean, David's the king. So, so he could very easily have Nathan throw out the door and say, I never want to see that guy again. So David could resist this or he could lean into it. And I am so glad that David leans into it. That's what a man after God's own heart does when his sin is brought right in front of him. He knows he can't hide, knows he can't do anything. A man after God's own heart owns his sin. He deals with it. That's what, David, that's what we see David do in verse 13 where David says very simply, I have sinned against the Lord. No more maneuvering, no more manipulation, no more deception, just confession. I have sinned against the Lord. And then just to show how superior grace is, look at what Nathan says. He says, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. Keep reading in chapter 12 and you'll see consequences follow David's sin. Consequences often follow sin. We need, we need to understand that. So while there are consequences, there isn't condemnation though. The Lord has taken away your sin, David. And finally, after a year of sitting in this sin, David knows forgiveness. David feels, he experiences the cleansing of knowing that his most important relationship with God has been restored. And God has taken away his sin. David will be the first in line to agree with everything we're seeing this morning. Sin is serious. David would say, absolutely. I can point to the wake of people behind me that show you that sin is serious. But he would also be the first to raise his hand and say, but grace is superior and if David can say this, we should shout it because we know even more than David did. You see, where God sent Nathan to David as an act of this initiating grace, God has sent his son to us as the act of initiating grace. It is as beautiful and as simple as John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Before we ever took a step towards God, he took the biggest step towards you that anyone could take. He sends, he gives his one and only son. So if you ever wonder, how is God showing me this sort of take the first step towards me, initiating grace? Look at this. God has done it. He has given us Jesus. And, and where, where Nathan declares God's forgiveness to David, Jesus accomplishes God's forgiveness for us. See, Jesus took our sin, your sin, my sin on himself, died for you on a cross, most shameful, pain-filled death imaginable, so that we could be restored to God. And so if we ever wonder if our sin is so big that God can't quite cover it, God, how can you cover that? If sin has gotten bigger than, than you ever would have guessed in your life, 
hear me say with everything we discover in God's word in this book that however big your sin is, grace is always bigger than your sin. Amen? Yes. Amen. Sin is serious. But grace is always, always, always superior. That's how good our God is. That's how good the grace that he gives is. Let's downshift a little bit and and turn the corner. And let's start talking about, about application. What does all of this that we've seen today mean for us? Let's get clear on what this means for you. A few very simple things, but very important things. I mean, I, th- I think one thing this means is that we need to avoid sin. Just think how different David's life would have been if the second he had seen Bathsheba, instead of running towards that sin, he had run away from it instead. See, today we've seen that sin isn't glamorous and there's nothing attractive about it. It's not cute and it can't be contained. And so that means the right response to sin is to run from it. The right response to temptation isn't to fight it, it's to flee from it. Because of how serious sin is, we need to, we need to put structures in our lives and we need to just develop this mindset and this, this heart perspective that the right approach to sin is to avoid it. Not to get as close as we can to it without getting burned, but to avoid sin. Another thing we see practically is that we need to deal with sin quickly and correctly. You see, when when we do sin, because we all will still continue to sin, when we do sin, it means we don't ignore it or deny it or, or try to come up with excuses to justify it, nothing like that. When we sin, we respond to it quickly and correctly confessing it to God, and then this, this biblical word called repentance, which just means we, we do a U-turn. We turn away from the sin, and we turn toward God. That's how we deal with sin quickly and correctly. A few years ago, when our boys were uh, quite a bit younger and still drinking out of sippy cups, I remember a time when, when I was cleaning out our minivan, and I found this sippy cup that had been sealed pretty tightly, kind of stashed really deeply underneath one of the seats in our minivan. And so, so I, I open up this sippy cup, and I see this thing that, that had one time been milk, you know, but now it winked at me. I mean, something was alive in that sippy cup. I, I mean, it was disgusting what it had become. But you know what? It sure made me check our van a whole lot more frequently than I did. It sure made me deal with any little messes that I saw right away rather than thinking, oh, there's a sippy cup under there. How bad could it be? You know, we had a new pet now because of that first sippy cup. I mean, I I learned to deal with it quickly. I learned to keep my eyes on it. Learned to deal with it correctly. We need to learn that same lesson about our sin. We need to check ourselves often. And deal with sin correctly, confessing it and turning to God. Then last application I'll mention this morning is that we keep Christ in focus. See, the best way to stay focused on grace is to stay focused on Christ. Who he is and everything that he came to do. And so as 
So for as much as we need to, to talk about the seriousness of sin and as much as we need to keep that in front of us, we need to understand that we don't defeat sin by only looking at our sin. As counterintuitive as maybe this seems, the best way to defeat sin is to deal with it, but then the best way to defeat sin is to focus on Christ. Because as we focus on Christ, the, the sin in our lives, it loses its taste. And we start to want God and the things of God more and more and more. And so keep Christ and keep his work fully in focus. Keep the superior grace that he offers fully in focus. And then that just crowds out the space for sin in our lives and the desire for sin in our hearts. John Newton is a model for how to put together the things we've been talking about today. John Newton was a slave trader in the 18th century, and he was as steeped in sin as someone can get. Not only was he a slave trader and everything that involves, but he was a sailor. And sailors, especially sailors a couple hundred years ago, weren't always known for their high morals. But then Newton found Jesus and he becomes a Christian. And so, so Newton had life experience with the seriousness of sin. He could close his eyes and visualize things that he'd done. But Newton also knew the superiority of grace. He's actually the guy that wrote the song Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. That's John Newton. So he knew the superiority of grace. But, but listen to what John Newton said towards the end of his life before he died at age 82. He said, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things. Two things are just cemented in his memory. That I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. He gets it. That's right. I am a great sinner. Sin is serious. And Christ is a great Savior. Grace is supreme. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to take a second now and just thank you for your grace. But God, I also pray that, that by your Holy Spirit in our lives that we would feel appropriate conviction for our sin. We would feel the weight of it, Jesus. That way we, we know that sin is not something that's glamorous. Sin is not something to take lightly. But Father, help us feel the weight of our sin so that we understand the beauty of your grace. Jesus, help us with this. We pray these things in your name. Amen.